Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin. Wassalatu wassalam ala nabiyyil kareem wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Welcome brothers and uh, sisters uh, to a webinar that I uh, feel will be very beneficial inshallah ta'ala or our podcast that will be very beneficial inshallah ta'ala. Something that um, uh, plagues our community, something that is very much uh, needed in our discussions inshallah ta'ala. So without further ado, the topic is today uh, the role of Islamic education uh, in the 21st century for parents and adults. Um, and inshallah ta'ala, we have with us esteemed guest, uh, Sheikh Shams Abduha, who needs no introduction. Um, someone who I have, uh, you know, been very benef- uh, you know, greatly benefited from, uh, and I work with as well. Alhamdulillah. So, Sheikh, um, let's get straight into it. Um, sure. If it's okay with you, if you have no objections, I would no, like to. Assalamualaikum to everybody. Quite a few questions here. Um, Number one is, you know, parenting from an Islamic perspective. Before we even get started. Um, do we have, you know, do we have a rich tradition when it comes to parenting? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa man wala. Amma ba'd. So first of all, uh, assalamu alaikum to everybody who's, uh, who's watching. Um, it, it depends on what you mean by that. Uh, if you mean a step-by-step step guide, a, per, a step-by-step parenting guide kind of, uh, systematically presented in terms of what to do at each age, then I think everybody knows that that's that's not what we have in the tradition. In so far as uh, as our nusus are concerned, however, we have sufficient guidance um, around parenting, and simply because obviously we we our tradition is a living tradition. It's a tradition that didn't land on a mountain in the form of sacred tablets, right? But it's a tradition that came with a man, uh, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who was uh, a human being, um, a father, uh, a husband, a brother, son, nephew, all of those, all of the kind of social dynamics, the social connections that provide the the backdrop and the context to the the nurturing of a child were all things that were lived by the Prophet and then he brought us guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which gave us uh, a set of general principles uh, some of which clearly outline our objectives in life and others which provide some general guidelines in terms of perhaps how we can conduct ourselves when it comes to parenting, when it comes to nurturing children. So, uh, first of all, one of the most important things that that we have, and perhaps not emphasized enough in the context of parenting, is that our deen gives us clear objectives, it gives us a clear purpose. Um, And that purpose is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to keep the akhirah in front of us as our ultimate objective Objective in terms of where we want to succeed and what we want to prepare for in, in our lives. And that also therefore sets the scene for what our objective is when it comes to nurturing children, when it comes to parenting them. So therefore, uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses commands specific to family, he tells us 
save yourselves and your families from the hellfire. Uh, and so, and therefore we know, we know our objective in terms of parenting. And I think perhaps the first thing we can evaluate ourselves against is that standard, that principle, that as parents is our primary objective to prepare uh, our children, the next generation for success in the Akhirah, or are we either consciously or unconsciously uh, focus entirely or disproportionately on preparing them purely for the dunya? I think that's a question that every parent can straightforward just ask themselves. Right? Look in the mirror, ask yourself, what are you preparing your children for? So we have clear objectives in terms of what it is that we're preparing parents for. Then you have uh, how might we do that? Here, I think it's, it's part of the wisdom of the Sharia that we don't necessarily have a step-by-step -step guide. Just in exactly the same way that many aspects of the Sharia overall don't, do not provide us with step-by-step -step guides because the Sharia has come to not just any prophet, but to the final prophet, to Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, whose message will remain alive uh, beyond his lifetime. And uh, as clearly uh, mentioned in, in the Quran and the Sunnah, all the way until, uh, until Qiyamah, because he is the final messenger. And as such, just like the, his, the, the Sharia brought to us by the Prophet has to survive till the end of time uh, and be applicable and relevant till the end of time. The same is true of all things that are necessarily required in order to ensure that. And that means passing the Sharia on, passing the deen on from generation to generation. That will require us to, in the way the Sharia has done that, the way the Prophet has done that is that where there are things that are universally applicable to all times we will find specific injunctions specific commands and where things where there the, the, we we know that we will need principles that will enable us to adapt to different circumstances the sharia, the sharia has, uh, has given us uh principles right and the same is true of parenting for example um, I often use the word age appropriateness in parenting and people might think, oh, where did that come from? And that's just a modern educational buzzword. But that's very much embedded in the principles of the Sharia, right from the very, the, the, from the basics in terms of the principle of that no one is, uh, is, uh, is burdened with anything that they cannot bear and as, as a general principle. And then in terms of specifics, uh, whereby we know something that is known by necessity in the deen that taklif is based on age, that that there is an age of responsibility in the sharia, uh, and 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 obligations come at a certain uh, at a certain point when uh, when it is understood that a child matures to an age where it can accept responsibility, where it can be responsible for its actions, where you know, where it has tamiz, it has the ability to, the child has the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. And it's, it's, it's as the child nears that stage that we have other specific teachings from the Prophet And I'm not focusing on the specific teaching and the specific issue, but on the principle of age appropriateness, the Prophet said, for example, that you know, command your children uh, to perform salah at the age of seven, discipline them for not performing salah at the age of 10. This shows an age appropriateness that that, that in in 
in terms of the way the Prophet ﷺ wants to teach us this particular principle uh, is that children are gradually nurtured into uh, the, the, the necessary steps that are required for them to, by the time they reach maturity, become habitual in things that are an absolute fundamental to their success in the hereafter. So and and so on and so forth. Well, hello, Majaran. You can you can pretty much set set the scene along those lines in terms of everything that we do around parenting. Of course, it's a very important subject now because of the fact that we are very much in new times, times that are that are very strange compared to uh, the times of the Prophet and the Sahaba and the Tabi'un and the Salaf. And I suppose that has to be. Uh, the discussion. So I suppose the short answer is if you want a step-by-step -step guide, then that is something that the ulama have, you know, have tried in their own ways, according to their own times and places, have tried to articulate uh, in various books and so on by distilling from those principles in the Sharia some guidelines around what are the uh, duties upon parents uh, towards the the nurturing of their children. Um, but there is there is plenty of scope in there for, for adaptation. And I suppose the one important thing that is required in parenting is, is wisdom. And my favorite definition of wisdom is, is to do things in a manner that is appropriate to the time and place and appropriate to the person. And therefore, parenting techniques have to be adjusted on that basis. Um, but of course, we, we, we've gone too far ahead uh, the first thing I guess we have to do is 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 highlight the importance of parenting. Parenting is something that, particularly in the West, can't be done on autopilot. Children are not going to bring themselves up. We can't just be however we want to be and expect a good result uh, in terms of the in terms of the parenting of our children. There are serious considerations around the conduct of parents. Uh, as people who themselves are able to demonstrate that their preparation for the akhirah, their their success in the akhirah is foremost in their minds, foremost in the decisions that they make in their lives, foremost in uh, in their worldview and in their outlook towards life, and foremost in their behavior, in their character. And I think if that principle is there, uh, along with some of the important social considerations, then you can expect a good result from in terms of the, the upbringing of children even if perhaps the parents haven't specifically thought through a very clear strategy right in terms of parenting you can still hope for good results and those social considerations that i mentioned are important uh, things like uh, the importance of the family the centrality of the family the centrality and the importance of the extended family passing those values on to children, showing them those values, showing them the importance both of the nuclear family but also of the extended family. These are all safeguards and also demonstrating to children through our actions that even with our families and even with our extended families, we choose who we engage with on the basis of the principle of deen, not on the basis of the principle of, of tribal affiliation, blood relations and so on. And if somebody, and, and therefore, uh, we make exceptions when, when, uh, when, when it comes to mingling with and socializing with with people who are detrimental to our dean and detrimental to our children's dean, even if they may well be uh, family and relatives. 
So those are just some introductory uh, comments on, on, on that, inshallah. Actually, you know, I know it was rather, uh, I wouldn't say ambiguous, but it was rather broad, what you had initially dis discussed in the last five minutes or so. But I think, you know, in order for us to really appreciate what you really mean by your words, it'd be good to delve into a little bit of specifics with certain questions yeah. that we've got, inshallah, if you don't mind me so. Um, so, obviously, it seems to us in the time that we're living in right now uh, that the modern era brings about its own set of problems. Um, and it seems it seems to me, inshallah, I would like your thoughts on this, inshallah. Um, how, you know, how do we navigate uh, in the modern era with, with, with social media, with uh, s certain work, you know, the nine to five, perhaps that's changing as well, actually, with lockdown. But, you know, from an economic perspective, from a social perspective, how do we still maintain our religion uh, and actualize it on a practical level, both parents and parents looking after their children? So not just the parents with their children, but the parents themselves. How do we actualize our faith and make it accessible for our children uh, and include, including ourselves as well? So let me begin by saying that the reason why I feel the general principles need to be outlined they need to be stressed again and again is because in my observation that's what's missing there isn't a single parent out there who who is religious even at the level of a strong identification with islam like they may not be the most educated muslim they may they may not know their fiqh very well and their aqidah very well and so on but they identify firmly as Muslims and they identify with those sha'air of Islam, those key uh, symbols of Islam uh, that in their understanding are important, whether it be the five times Salah or even just the Jum'ah or, or Eid and so on. People are very, very diverse in that regard. Um, so even if it's just at the level of identity, it, if, if there isn't a recognition that Deen is the most important thing in our lives in terms of the broader principle, then even getting some of those specific rights, specific things right, will not protect our children from what are very, very clear and uh, present dangers uh, in the modern era. And social media is just, is just one of them. With the right orientation, with the right, with the right outlook, with the right tarbiyah and nurturing, with the right worldview, uh, a child doesn't have to, a, a child growing up again age appropriately at the right age, right age doesn't necessarily have to be sheltered from social media if if they know that they're important you know foundational principles but if they don't know that then they are in danger even if their parents have managed to get them into the habit of praying five times a day get them into the habit of fasting Ramadan, or even other actions so I, I always talk about this, that it's really, really important that we impart both onto the community as well as on our children not just practices which are of course important but also uh, a worldview a way of thinking a way of prioritizing right um so you know life is about sacrifices okay uh, we we all do it. every single day we make decisions that prioritize one thing over another all right and one of the most important things that our children will learn from us will be what what it is that dictates our prioritizations and they will have a lifetime of decisions right that will inform them clearly as to 
what is what was important to their parents right and it will and if they if they if they take on board their parents example which even if they don't do it consciously they will do it subconsciously then they will learn from those calls that we make when we prioritize dunya over deen they will learn from that they will take something from that even if subconsciously and it will be difficult for them to come out to break out of that even when perhaps even against the the the, the kind of the direction of their upbringing they became practicing they they had they had good friends they found they ended up with an islamic society uh, at university and they became practicing even though they weren't brought up to be practicing they will subconsciously still be deeply affected by by what they saw their children prioritizing and the same is true of, of the reverse a child who perhaps has been brought up hasn't uh, has been brought up in terms of the the right priorities they've been they've been given a very very strong world view but parents gave them a great deal of freedom in terms of how they then develop how they then choose to to apply that worldview to themselves they may they may not have been particularly strict with regards to their prayer and so on but that but that principle of religion is important is not only stated to them but also shown to them in terms of the decisions that their parents uh, made and perhaps that children struggle that child and most likely that those kind of parents will impart the obligations of of the the salah and etc onto their children and then perhaps their children will end up straying as it happens to many many young people but probably those pe people who grow up in that kind of an environment tend to come back because again just like the other child had been subconsciously nurtured to prioritize the wrong things this child or this young person has been subconsciously nurtured to prioritize but to prioritize the right things so that's why these general things are extremely important to to bear in mind when it comes to specifics the thing about specifics is that they're not so straightforward. If you, if we're, if we're going to talk about things like social media and, and so on and so forth, we have to consider it in terms of age. That's why one of the first things I said is age appropriateness. Every piece of advice that is imparted has to take into consideration age. And when advice is given without taking that into consideration, perhaps advice that was generic, that perhaps in the mind of the speaker, in my mind, I'm thinking about older children, right? Or I'm thinking about really young children. Sometimes what people do is take that literally and apply that to the wrong age group. So when we talk about specific, we have to speak in terms of age. And I don't know if you want to speak specific, specifically about social media, uh, you know, but, but my practice personally, as well as what I would advise, is that children are sheltered from those kind of things until they reach, and I'm going back to the principles that I have laid out, that we go back to this principle of the age of Tamiz. I said to my, my eldest, that you cannot have a smartphone until you demonstrate tamiz based on sharia tamiz based on sharia is the ability to distinguish to distinguish between right and wrong based on a shari worldview a religious worldview worldview a worldview informed by islam that and, and what and that what i'm talking about here th these are these are buzzwords but they're very important if you just reflect on them for a moment right i'm talking about a, a, a moral compass that is informed by the commands of Allah and the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah. Not a moral compass that is sub, that is a subjective one based on what, what you think or what I think is right and wrong, but what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dictates as right, right and wrong, what the Messenger of Allah and his teachings dictate as right and wrong. 
And I, I said to my son that when you show me that you can make decisions based on those principles, based on that kind of a moral compass, then you can have a smartphone, right? And it's only then that a child, you know, a, a, obviously a smartphone, an email, an email address, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, and I, I actually initially said eighteen. I said eighteen. And then I, you know, I realized the pressures around him. I realized there was a lot. He, he was in an Islamic school, uh, in an Islamic secondary school. So up until sixteen, he was exposed to Islamic messages, uh, you know, constantly, every single day. But there was still peer pressure. You know, I was hearing weekly how, you know, at, at the age of 13, at the age of 14, he was the only one that had a brick phone, you know, that didn't have a smartphone. That he had friends who had Note 9s and, you know, these wonderful devices and they could do whatever they wanted. And that sometimes he would come to me and complain about how he's shocked by some of the things that his friends show him on their smartphones and how to give me comfort. He would never do that if I ever gave him a smartphone. You know, it's really, really interesting dialogues that demonstrated to me how even in what is an Islamic school, even in a, in, in a school where parents are paying money for their children to be brought, to be taught Islamically, to be educated Islamically, even though there was a free alternative, there were these, what, what you can only call massive um, shortcomings in some of the parenting decisions that people were taking not because i'm sure those parents had some kind of philosophy in their mind you know in their mind they're probably thinking yes i don't want to i don't want my children to feel that they're losing out etc etc but you don't know what is happening behind your back and whatever the case may be your decisions to expose your children to social media at a young age to expose to give your children a smartphone which is essentially a window into the world right a window into the into the world you're literally it's like letting your children out of the front door right in the morning and not bothering about what they're doing for the rest of the day right as long as they come home for dinner and for meals and as long as they come home at night that is essentially what people are doing and that's happening even in the in in what we might call strict islamic environments with strict muslim parents uh, who are just allowing their children to do things like that eventually i i let my son have a smartphone at the age of 16 and and i regretted that i regretted that right um but i keep really really strong uh, strict parenting controls and so on you know he's much older now and i still keep them because I, I my my rule is still the same when i see tamiz based on sharia when i see that you're able to distinguish between right and wrong based on a moral compass informed by the sharia then you're your own man right until then you're my son and i am accountable in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the decisions that I take on your behalf, for the decisions that I take that will impact you. So on that specific point, I think those are some thought, some thoughts that I feel are important. I think that was really intriguing. Um, and it's, it's made me think about a few things, mainly um, reminded me when you started to talk about age, you didn't actually mention a specific age, you mentioned the word tamiz, right? So you mentioned something, a benchmark that wasn't particularly capped to age. But then it also made me think of actually during the time of the Prophet Solomon, obviously this is now far, far away, but they, they would have commanders at the age of, you know, very young ages, perhaps, you know, yeah. what was it, Osama, I think it was, one of the youngest commanders to lead the, the battlefield. And, That's right. And um, it, it, I, I wouldn't ask where did it go wrong because that would be, that would be uh, you know, wrong to ask. But I'm guessing 
maturity is something that age or perhaps maturity is something that people develop later on in our times would you agree that is the correct or i believe so and we don't have to go back to the time of the prophet um i would encourage anybody to uh first of all i would encourage everybody to to if you have relatives back home in in the third world uh, that you keep in touch with them and you make and you and you make some close observations about how they behave and how their children are um you know I have cousins back home who have been fully responsible for their families financially, right? You know, they're orphans and they've been financially responsible for their families quite competently since the age of 11, 12, right? This isn't something we have to go back 1400 years for. This is still happening today. They obviously have new challenges, you know? When that young orphan asks for help from his relatives, if he's growing up nowadays, he's asking for a mobile phone, right? He's asking for a, for a smartphone because his peers have it and he wants it and it's something that he desires. But in terms of tamiz and responsibility around worldly considerations, around the question of economics and money and and providing for, for his family and so on, if he doesn't have any older siblings, doesn't have any guardians, fathers passed away and so on, he's doing all of it he's doing jobs at the age of uh, uh, you know at what would be considered underage what would be illegal right in the west but he's he's going out there working doing labor jobs has been earning since the age of 12 and the he, when you speak to that child they show that in their discourse you can see deep a deep sense of responsibility inside them from a very very young age so the point i'm making is that really times haven't changed circumstances have changed and circumstances continue to vary today and a child growing up in the west can be just as responsible at that age if they are nurtured in a way that or if they if they grow up in an environment that forces responsibility upon them which is usually how it happens or they are brought up in a way that responsibility is is taught to them from a young age and when we talk about tamiz and responsibility the reason why it's important to discuss it in that way is there are variations from children to children right not each one of your children is going to be the same girls generally tend to tend to show um that, that tend to show tamiz before boys this is well-known fact right the girls they both biologically tend to mature before boys this is i'm talking about the physical signs of of maturity in the sharia uh uh, and uh, and actually inter in, in intellectually and in terms of responsibility, they tend to show maturity uh, at an earlier age. But obviously, there are also some paradigmatic differences, right? You know, in the West, life, even for even in the toughest of circumstances, is still much easier than just ordinary life uh, in in the third world, right? Um, and therefore, people can. There are legal protections around what can and can't happen at certain ages. And therefore, uh, there isn't a great, they, they, they're exposed to a lot of education compared to people in the third world, compared to people in the past. However, none of that education is to do with developing their sense of responsibility, developing their sense of taking responsibility for their own actions, but also the actions of others. Even if they're taught to take responsibility for their own actions, they are not taught to take responsi responsibility for the actions of others, right? They're taught a very individualistic kind of idea of responsibility. So their education 
their environment, their context, their economic, their socioeconomic uh, kind of climate, all of these things play a part in the in that variation. Their gender plays a part in in terms of Tamiz, which is why it's you can't say from this age to that that age you have to do this. Though even though even if I even if I say if, if I say 16, 17, 18 when it comes to access to social media, etc. etc. Different parents will make will, parents will make different decisions with very diverse results. Some parents will be far more strict than I have been with my son and anticipating much better results, but their results will 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 be will prove to be wrong. They will they would end up with bad results because the child responded badly to their decisions. Which is another thing you have to take into consideration. You can never be rigid about these things because children respond differently. Parents have their own dreams about their children, right? But your children are not you. I wanted my my I wanted my my children to be hafif early, right? I wanted them to memorize the Quran early. Naturally, it's my background. It's something that my parents gave to me, right? It was it was something of an imposition in the sense that. I was never allowed to see an alternative. I was never allowed to see an alternative ambition, an alternative aspiration. The best thing that I could ever do was memorize the Quran and 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 learn the Deen and serve the Deen and so on and so forth. So I, I, as a child, as a young person growing up, it never occurred to me that I would do a degree. Never occurred to me that I would go and get a job and earn money. Obviously, I, I know that that has to be done. My father had to do that. But not that that was important. I was never taught that that was important. I was taught those things will come. You have to prioritize Dean and so on and so forth. And growing up, I felt it's the best thing my parents could have done for me. Right? They did. They that they they made the right decision. It worked with regards to me. So I thought I would impart that to my to my children. But I had to make adjustments. Some of them, those some of those adjustments kind of hit me like a ton of bricks all of a sudden. All of a sudden, I had to kind of take my foot off the pedal and say, okay, you know what? You, you take it easy. You do it in your own time. And I'll, I'll give you this anecdote, right? Um, don't, take the specific, don't take the specifics from it. Take the principle from it. Um, when it comes to Hif, for example, one of my children, I don't want to put him on the spot in case he's watching. So one of my children, he, he expressed quite strong kind of resistance to, to the idea. And he made some intelligent articulations, right? But to the idea of, of memorizing the Quran being pushed upon him, right? Because it was, I mean, there was a constant pressure. You know, a lot of the children in our family are memorizing the Quran. And there's, there is a kind of subtle comparison going on between different children. They're not all performing the same. The results are not the same for all of them. And the level of difficulty isn't the same for all of them. And there was a point at which, you know, there was, a, there was, a, there was a, a, something of a meltdown, right? And I basically... I decided I, I could have I'm quite hot-headed I could have reacted in a bad way but I often say about that particular incident that the best people to teach you sabr are your children right children don't teach parents sabr. you know parents I would say at least parents who you know who are normal and and have a normal kind of uh, comp uh, disposition if you're constitution um, those parents probably learn their greatest lessons in patience with their children because nobody makes a parent feel feel helpless uh, the way children do, right? For other from other people, you can walk away. You can't walk away from your children. So, so I learned a big lesson in patience. I learned that I had to back off, and so I I said I said, okay, no pressure. Uh, I will never chase you up about this. You do it. 
but my only wish as a parent and you you should respect that you understand that my only wish as a parent is that at some point in your life and sorry i said that you could continue learning the quran you continue memorizing the quran and if allah gives you tawfiq you aspire to to memorize it at some point in your life but i'm happy if it's a lifelong if it's a lifelong effort yeah so, so for a while honestly i spent months and months and months in this sense of in this sense of kind of you know i was in between places thinking have i made the right decision should i have continued to to keep the pressure and for a while there was complete neglect nothing was happening then suddenly my wife tells me do you know what um he's for the for a couple of months now he's been getting together with one of his cousins and and they've been memorizing the quran together I did nothing, right? I did nothing. I just backed off. So sometimes you have to do things against your best instincts, against the principles that you've been brought up on. And therefore that adjustment, right? Being able to adjust is extremely important, right? And all we can do is make- If it's okay, I was gonna mention that we've um, received a comment saying that some background noise. Um, is it possible you could connect some headphones or do you not have that in the in the office, or it should be continuing, inshallah? Right, well, if you give me a, a second, uh, let me just change my mic, yeah, because I have had no. this problem before with the mic. No, problem, inshallah. Thank you for that comment, and um, inshallah, that's comments. sorted. Yeah. Uh, let me just do that one second. Uh, might have to, might have to go and change my equipment. Just let me know if if it's uh, if it's better, okay? Inshallah. All right. Is it is it better now? Is it better now? It seems to me like it's fine now, but sometimes during well, the if, if brothers and sisters can let us know if it's better. I'm using a desk mic now. I was just using the mic built-in mic on my camera before. Yeah, it seems seems perfect right now, Sheikh Khana. Okay. Um, yes, it's better. I was going to say, uh, Sheikh Khana, look, um, I feel like you've talked about so many things, uh, and I need to I need to decode it. And into sizable chunks where people can actually, you know, appreciate what you're saying. Um, uh, alhamdulillah, you know, usually we have the time, we have a timer when I'm working with you, you know, and stuff like that. But this is, this is a different format. So, um, <laughs> alhamdulillah, it's very interesting for me. Sheikh I'm going to ask you something specific now because you mentioned something about parenting uh, and how children, no matter how much you parent, children are going to be always be influenced by their school friends. School friends, for example, for your child had smartphones, and those smartphones were way ahead of the time compared to what your child had. Um, now, something slightly off topic, but related to the environment of schools for our children um, and their education. Uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, RSE, for example, uh, in schools, uh, I presume that wasn't something of a problem for your child, but nowadays, like, especially in the last five years or, you know, with legislation was passed and um, it's becoming more apparent in schools, how do we, um, how do we really, I mean, I understand you created, you started something called a Mawadid Lifestyle, you know, that came probably from some of these issues, I presume, where you see, you saw children, you saw you know, people going through this sort of, like you know, lifestyle issues uh, and, and these kinds of problems. How would, I mean, what advice would you give for, for parents that have children going to these schools? Um, how do we approach this? Uh, you know, try to be, try as much as you can, try to be as specific as possible with okay, any well, I so I, I my lifestyle started because I felt for a long time I'd been for a number of years I'd felt that I had I was spending too much time in management. I, as many people will know that I was 
I was one of the founders of Ibrahim College and I've been pretty much in, in a leadership stroke management position ever since. And there were some personal sacrifices, like I like to teach, I like teaching and I wasn't doing much of that. But also there was some, there was some other kind of macro considerations, if I might put it that way, um, uh, which were around, I, some of my work at Brim College was very high level. It was very kind of ivory tower. It was about, you know, it was a seminary first and foremost. The majority of our effort went into the Alimiya program and and producing Sharia graduates. Although we had a, a rich kind of uh, collection of, of part-time courses for people in the community, personally, I felt that because it was in an institutional format, even as the head of the institution, it was very difficult because financial considerations were so significant in that format, I felt that it was I couldn't run the kind of courses and programs that I wanted to, that were needed in the community because of those financial considerations. Because honestly, I genuinely believe that the community doesn't want the things that they need the most. I don't know if that is from the shaitan or if it's to do with how we're brought up, etc. Um, you run a course on, uh, I don't know, you know, something, something really not not necessary to the essentials of the deen. Arabic language is a very good example. Like if you run if you run courses and you run an Arabic language course, right? You'll get more signups than courses on fiqh on the essentials of fiqh. Why is that? To me, that is evidence of something going structurally wrong with the way we think. Anyway, so so I decided to basically step down from, from that and set something up where I could make those decisions completely based on how I am affected personally. So that if, if there is a financial impact, it's on me. It's not on a whole team of, of, of other people and on an institution uh, that relies on the community's uh, goodwill, right? But it's entirely on me so that I could make those decisions. And I had two things in mind. Number one, uh, things that were urgent needs of the community, you know, like troubleshooting issues. And this is this is where RSE comes in. And this is where courses on dealing with loss of faith comes in. And number two things that I just wanted to do. I enjoyed doing them. You know, I like teaching fiqh, so I teach fiqh, right? You know, and so on. So those were the things really in initially, and it still is pretty much just me wanting to do my khidma, wanting to do it full time, not wanting to take a job out there because it'll eat up all of my time. Um, but able to make priority decisions based on what I think are important in the community. And, and I engage a lot with ulama, a lot, right? Pro way more than, you know, the average Sharia graduate. And when I say something is a priority, really, I'm not talking about myself. It's because there is a lot of acknowledgement among hundreds of ulama that I discuss with them on a regular basis that this is an important priority. But not everybody's in a position to, to make decisions and take immediate action because people have their own circumstances. And I thought that that's what I needed to do. And hence, I set up the platform online, moidlifestyle.com. And there were two things that, three things that I that I focused on. One was a course on on Iman that I that I designed specifically with the intention of teaching people about Islam, about Aqidah, about Iman in a way that would make them resilient to doubt. Because because doubts with regards to Iman among older youth people who kind of reach university age and then people and then off and beyond basically all the way up to adulthood even you know i've, I've had examples of of parents forcing irtidad on their children wallahi this is it's, it's unbelievable but i've had i've dealt with a case where a father was pushing 
uh, his child, right, to renounce Islam. This is a father who'd been brought up on Islam. How does that happen? Obviously, I have a theory about how it happened, but it's astonishing that things like that are happening. And obviously, many other examples. And I thought that something needs to be done. Some people are doing something about it. I'm a very local-minded person, right? Yes, I'll use technology and try to also bring about wider benefit. But I'm very local-minded, right? I, you know, I feel a direct responsibility for where I live and the people that I'm around because I feel they're the people that I will be asked about the most on the day of judgment. So I feel if there isn't a service like that here, then then I want to provide it. So so that came about. The second thing that I focused on which kind of just landed was this RSC issue, which is why I talk about RSC, right? Um, it's a big issue in Taham because in Taham, the local authority has recommended the kind of the liberal extreme in terms of decisions about RSC to the extent that some of the controversial elements like LGBT education uh, and so on are being imposed upon children. In fact, it was the council's recommendation to start at the age of five. Sheikh, if I could interject uh, kindly, with regards to you know RSD, I mean, let, let's let's uh, let's assume the schools will continue the way that they are. The way yeah, so, going. How would and, you, as, as a parent, would, you know, help your children? That's exactly what I would say. I would say that you have to assume that things will continue as they are because not everybody not everybody lives in a heavily Muslim populated area where they can put together any kind of a campaign that will change decisions. Although, funny enough, actually, people who live outside of inner cities are actually better off because the non-Muslims outside of inner cities tend to be less liberal. And they're actually That's not right, yeah. they're not bothering too much with regards to RSC. My friends who live in smaller towns or more rural towns and so on, they're saying it's not an issue here. Right. In fact, we're being protected by by the local community because they have more kind they're, they're more, they have more Christian values and more traditional values. The inner cities is, are, 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 if you like, liberal enclaves. Right. And this is where the majority of the Muslim community is, you know, East London and places like that. And here, a lot of school leadership is in the hands of people who are quite firmly kind of liberal. And, and therefore, whether we like it or not, things will happen that we will not want. Right. Um, that means that a lot of RSE, either because of our own neglect or our own lack of opposition and activity uh, or because we tried and we lost. Right. Things will happen. Um, in a manner that we will, will not have wanted, which means that we have to therefore consider several things. Number one, continue to basically take action uh, with regards to the school, continue to lobby governors, continue to lobby the head, continue to have those conversations, find out uh, who's active in the community on this issue. If, if, if there is someone, then join them and support their efforts. If there, if there isn't anybody, then set something up yourselves. The second thing is assume nothing is going to happen. Assume it's not going to work. And now RSE, in the worst possible way, from a Muslim point of view, in the worst possible manner, is going to be taught in school. Now what do you do? A lot of the times parents think that they can just withdraw their children. Well, actually, that's now quite limited. The right to withdraw has been severely restricted now. And a lot of and you may not even know that these things are being taught to the children because there's stuff that's happening outside of the lessons, the announced lessons, the announced RSE lessons where parents are informed that RSE lesson is happening here, you can withdraw a child if you want. Sometimes you won't be informed and sometimes more stuff will be happening outside of those lessons. So so what do we do? So now we have to have our own interventions, right? As parents, the most important thing to do is to always have conversations with your children, 
right? I, with regards to everything that I've said until now, and with regards to this specific issue, relationships and sex education is important in Islam. Let's establish this as a basic principle, right? Relationships and sex education is important in Islam. We have to give our children Islamic relationships and sex education. However, and health education, because it's, it's relationship, sex, and health education, isn't it? It's R-S-H-E. So um, all of those things are important when it comes to our children. Is our parent, does our parenting model incorporate that and how? Probably the most important thing to do is have age-appropriate conversations with our own children and constantly talk to them about what they did in school. And you'd be surprised at how many people don't, how many parents don't do this. It's just, it doesn't mean they don't want to do it. They just don't get around to it, right? When it comes to sex education, um, it's not just about sex as in how to do that. That's not, that's not what sex education is. Sex education incorporates the whole spectrum. Nowadays, it also incorporates this whole question of sexuality, right? And then the relationships aspects of, uh, of sex and relationship education is about understanding all the different ways in which human beings come together in a romantic fashion, right? Different relationships. And probably the relationship aspect that is most controversial for us is that children at various ages in primary school will be taught that there are, you know, there are, there are certain relationships that are normal in society that, are, that we, would, we wouldn't impart upon our children until they were much older, i.e., you know, uh, homosexual relationships, same-sex relationships, as they call them, right? But our children will be taught that some parents, some parents are, some families are, have a mum, dad, and children. Some families have uh, have uh, in just a mum. Some families have just a dad. Some families have two dads. Some families have two mums. According, strictly speaking, the government does not require schools. In fact, it's actually not part of the government's guidance to tell children that this is okay, to not make any kind of value statement with regards to that. But I guarantee you this will happen where the school's leadership, the teacher delivering the curriculum, that they are of a liberal uh, mindset. This will happen, right? So therefore, we have to have these conversations as well when we know that in the curriculum, these conversations are going to happen to children, even if it's just to see what's happening, what are our children thinking, what have they been taught in school, and so on. And then as they get older, in an age, of, I had the I had the conversation at the age of twelve, right? Um, you know, children need to be spoken about in terms of how they feel about if it's a girl, then how how she feels about boys. If it's a boy, then how she how he feels about girls. And these kind of conversations have to happen, and then we have to teach them respect for the opposite gender and how that plays out, and how that's important, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and how you know, how females, the idea of the, the opposite gender isn't just framed around sex, around romantic relationships. There are, there are the ultimately our whole foundation, the foundation of our interaction with the opposite gender starts with our experience of our parents, right? It begins with something that is completely platonic, right? It's in that context. It's only when children reach the age of puberty and beyond that it takes on a, a kind of a different dynamic until that point they're completely physically and mentally unconscious to it right but then society imposes those things upon them and this is where whereas when it comes to tamiz and responsibility children mature late in the west and in the modern world when it comes to sexuality and the question of sex right 
children mature way before their time. Right? This is dynamic. So are you saying that that is a difficult situation because although they are, you know, bodily, sexually maturing at a young age, but in terms of their maturity in their mind, they're maturing at a much later age. Well, I would, I would, I'm, I'm not an expert in psychology and child psychology, but my observation would be, anecdotal observation would, would be that they're intellectually maturing first, i.e. they're receiving information about these things and about the acceptability of these things, about of various sexual expressions and et cetera, et cetera, early, which is speeding up their physical maturity or their understanding of these things. So children are engaging in sexual activity before they are before they otherwise may be physically ready for it. But the, their body is responding to the intellectual stimulus, right? So they're exposed to porn, for example, and so on. You know, and I often, without any embarrassment, I tell this story. Like my first exposure to porn, having grown up and gone to school in this country, right, was at the age of 10 at primary school. Because one of the kids, brought a porn magazine into school to show his classmates, it was a Muslim child, to show his classmates. And he got it, he stole it from his older brother. Right? Here I am in my innocence, brought up in sheltered in a religious family, etc., etc. And boom, there it goes, right? That has a, has an impact on a child. Could you say right? it's traumatic as well? Yes, it's traumatic because it's because you essentially the physiological response it kind of it comes up and initially it brings on a mixture of confusion uh you know you know and so on it's a big hit to the system and then eventually you go through a kind of a, a, an acceptance and again whether you go through acceptance or not depends on your peers it depends on how it's seen among your peers if the peers see it as a bit of a laugh and joke and so on then you kind of take it on the chin in that way but it also impacts upon how you view the opposite gender Right. And so so the whole idea of sexual objectification and so on begins with children's exposure to these things and their exposure to these things. Come on. Nowadays, look at what the billboards are like now. Look at what is going on on when, when it comes to uh, when it comes to 15 rated movies and TV shows, 12 rated movies and TV shows. Even, even if, if the content isn't sexually ex explicit, then the romantic ideas are explicit. Right. All of these things have an impact on children. Right. And yes, in schools, there's a big deal about safeguarding. But out there in society, there is no consideration to safeguarding when it comes to these things. They're, they're, nobody cares about psychologically safeguarding children from these things. I mean, what does a PG labeled on a on a movie do? Right. If children have access to this stuff because they have because they know how to access their parents Netflix accounts. In fact, it's if I could kind of interject, Barakalafikum, for that discussion, just because we have another topic within this uh, subtopic and shall discuss, uh, we talked about obviously RSC, and I think you've actually given us a very good advice to beat the system, if you can, by educating your child as early as possible and having the discussions uh, well, and building that relationship. I'm, I'm going to just qualify that. Educating is a very yeah. strong word, and it may, it, may, it may kind of confuse parents and, and make them feel uh, burdened. What I'm saying is have conversations, right? I'm not going to label it technically with the word education. Have conversations and you'll know what to do because the conversations will unfold challenges. And perhaps you can then take advice based on the outcome of those conversations, right? But have conversations. Who can't have a conversation? <laughs> so who can't have a conversation?
I, I, I can appreciate what you mean by that. Um, but what, what do we do when it comes to, and this is a much more, uh, is a, a equally, if not more, scarier topic in terms of atheism itself. Um, and I mean, have you personally dealt with, you mentioned a story, obviously, of the father convincing the child to leave Islam, which is, which sounds shocking as it is, but it's 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 quite common to to see you know children leave Islam, leave the fold of Islam due to peer pressure, due to all kinds of things. Have you have you personally witnessed children you know leave Islam? Uh, and um, how how you know? I, I believe you currently you've got you've got a program available with your with your yeah. al that deals with this. I mean, could you elaborate on both those things, inshallah? So, I haven't. I, I wouldn't say that this happens to children. To children, there aren't. I have not come across too many examples, and I haven't heard of too many examples of children, i.e., below the age of maturity. Be, let's fix that now. Let's say below the age of fifteen. I haven't seen too many examples of children below the age of fifteen actually consciously renouncing their faith. It does happen. I'm sure it does happen. However, the questions begin. The questions that eventually lead to it begin. The doubts begin at that age, and you know. One thing that was really kind of struck me once was when I got a phone call from a friend who runs a, a madrasa, you know, one of these part-time Islamic schools for children. Uh, they run an evening one. And he said, he rang me and he said, our, ch our children are asking really difficult questions about uh, Islam and their uh, because of what they're learning in school. And we don't know how to deal with them. Could you, could you come and, and do a session with the children? I went and it was really interesting because it became a, a bit of a kind of anecdotal on the spot survey. I, I created sort of a safe space for the children. I said, look, you can you can ask me whatever you want, anything that you want. I joked around with them a little bit, kind of. And the children, they did, <laughs> you know, and they openly discussed things. And my, what I learned from that was you know, a large kind of room full of children. Right? I'm talking about 60 or 70 kids. And what I realized was children as young as 12 had already internalized messages that would later definitely uh, crystallize into doubts with regards to religion. And some of them were actually already articulating them in terms of doubts, were, were making kind of religious statements. They were already adjusting, if you like, they were already adjusting their understanding of deen according to what they have learned in school as fact, right? According to the values that they have already learned, right? Um, around, uh, you know, equality, um, some of the scientific issues around evolution and so on and so forth. They were already adjusting their understanding of how human beings were created based upon the theory of evolution, even at that age. Now, what happens if there is absolutely zero intention, zero intervention? And it's just left like that with that child. How is that? And if their education is just that, look, 70% of those children in that room won't have any further Islamic education after they finish in that madrasa. I guarantee it. The ones that will go on and do part-time courses and end up with an Islamic society, etc., etc., they will be the minority. I was at one university, and I remember the Islamic society, and I've asked Islamic societies these these questions all the time and somebody at the Islamic society they were giving me this really wonderful report about how they have a nice large prayer room and they've got x number of um, active part people in the Islamic society and so on and so forth and this many people attend Juma. and I asked them how many Muslims are there in the university in total because I, I said a comparison you're telling me all these positive stories but 
how many Muslims are there in total? The the 200 people that attend the Jum'ah, is that all? Like, are they all the Muslims in the university? I knew it wasn't. But it turned out that we're talking about 10%. Jum'ah attendees, I'm sure there are others who go and they go home, they don't have, they're not in the in the university on that day, etc., etc. Discount all of that, I would say it's about 10%. So the vast majority, basically, their Islamic education, their tarbiyah, all of that stuff stops at the age of 14. Their contact with ulama stops. All right. So all of these ideas that, that began at the age of 12, 13, 14, they're going to ferment. Right. And Allah forbid it, uh, you know, it, it, that, that it doesn't result in uh, in loss of faith. But it is. This is the message that I want people to understand. It is resulting in loss of faith. And we're just asleep to it. Ulama are asleep to it. It's resulting, you know, the, the, the stats coming out of the United States is that 23% of born Muslims are, are no longer, do not, are no longer affiliate with Islam. 23%. That's 23% that would admit it on, a, on an anonymous survey. Right? And estimations, some other estimations far exceed that, that figure. Okay? So, so I think we all need to wake up with regards to that. So when it comes to um my program i have a course that tries to teach aqidah and islam in a way that kind of intuitively without so there's two ways in which people who are doing any work in this area there's two ways in which they deal with it one is they try to give people answers to the controversial questions this is how islam responds to evolution this is how islam responds to to the tough questions about slavery and about polygamy and etc all these controversial issues in my opinion that has limited benefits answers are not the way right the answers are out there but nobody's looking for those answers number one number two um the answers don't still give people the proper justifications what we need to do is re-educate people in their faith from the ground up right people don't need we we have to stop telling people what the deen is and we need to show them how the deen works what the deen is based on what are the foundational principles of the deen how do we know our deen is true? Why is it true? Right? Most people haven't thought about that. But it is possible to teach that in a way that doesn't engage in, in sophisticated philosophy and so on. But we just teach them the inner workings of the deen. And that's basically what I try to do in my course called uh, How to uh, Protect Our Iman in Today's Climate. And then last year, I launched a program for, young, for a younger audience. And this is something of a test. And mainly, I designed it around my children. When I say my children, I mean I mean my teenage son. I have one son who is a teenager, and the other one is coming along soon. Um, and But I have nephews and nieces who are all of, of around that age, right, who are all teenagers. And I thought, OK, I'm not going to just take it for granted that they have been adequately educated with regards to these issues. Right? I'm not going to take it for granted, because what am I going to say to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? If I am asked on the day of judgment that, you know what, your nephew, your niece has had doubts about Islam his or her whole life, right? You didn't know because they never admitted it. What did you do about it? And I wouldn't be able to answer. So I said, right, I'm going to teach them directly. So I, so I thought the way to do that would be to design a program that's properly structured and everything, but not just teach them because they won't take it seriously if it's just me and them because it's uncle or it's dad and so on. But rather, I will open it up and, and uh, to the public and enroll other children. In, and then I will be fully committed. They have to be fully committed. It's a proper course. It's a proper program. So I launched a program called the Learned Youth Program. And I've been 
kind of teaching them some of these things just to see how it goes with with a younger audience and i have children as young as 13 all the way up to 18. it's a mixed group I'd, i would i probably prefer it not to be that mixed but it hasn't been all that bad and well like, i took feedback off them just this saturday on how how they respond you know we've reached a point where we've discussed how the deen works we've discussed their epistemology we've talked about the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we're about to talk about proofs of prophet, prophethood and so on kind of in in my using my method uh it, not, there's nothing unique really what i've done is i've just gone back to the beginning and i've just looked at how it's how it's traditionally done right and i've tried to adapt that using modern pedagogy and so on i'm not fantastically good at it but it's very conversational and well and i'm very encouraged by the results you know like so a 13 year old said to me i i get this stuff i face this stuff all the time at school right people from other faiths always ask me difficult questions because I'm a hijabi, et cetera, et cetera. And I feel, I, I feel like all of those questions have been answered now. Whether I can respond to anybody else or not, I am satisfied, you know, and I feel firmer in my faith. And this is from a 13-year-old, right? I couldn't believe it. I did not expect that from any of the younger ones in the class. I kind of asked for feedback and was expecting all the older students to kind of give me the feedback. So my point is... We need to do more. These are the little bits that I'm doing, but also that it kind of works with younger kids. Yes, it has, we have to adapt it and we have to make it age appropriate and our language and discourse and vocabulary has to be appropriate and so on. It has to reflect what they're picking up in school. But, you know, I'm really, really encouraged by how it works and I would encourage other ulama and the community to set up more of these programs. For that. I find that, you know, you mentioned some really good stuff there. I think, you know, that interaction you had with one of your students, for example, and how they said that I faced this stuff at school. Like, that was a relief for me to hear that from you, that something you're teaching them, Islamic, is having that impact in their school where they can feel comfortable in expressing their Islam and their identity and not feel as though they're a fraud in their own religion. So, I mean, to, to go on to more about that, inshallah, because I think that's really interesting. Uh, and inshallah ta'ala, uh, I think our, our viewers will benefit from that as well. In terms of the pedagogy of, of, your, of your programs and your approach, would you say it's something required not just for perhaps just children, teenagers, but also young adults, young parents themselves? Yeah, yeah. everybody, everybody. It's a re-education. Look, I'll tell you what I mean, right? The average Muslim, when they learn the articles of faith, they learn we believe in Allah, his angels, his messengers, his books, the last day, and we believe in predestiny. You know, we're told what? Not many people, if you're firm in your faith anyway, because it's how you've been brought up, you have simple justifications for your faith in your mind, perfectly valid, not a problem. Um, but we don't give much thought to why. But we live in an age of why, right? There is a why behind everything, right? And our general knowledge is far above the general knowledge around you know, things like how things work in creation, you know, scientific facts, scientific general knowledge, etc. We're conditioned to want to know how things work, right? Um, we have to respond to that by making sure now that it becomes general education, general Islamic education for people to know how their deen works. And it isn't rocket science. I'm not talking about teaching them kalam and theology and complexities of that. The basic principles of how our deen works are actually very, very simple and very intuitive, right? But every single Muslim needs to know it. And if you can break it down in that way, wallahi, you, you know, you kind of 
all of those difficult questions that people use are that's out there in the media and with Islam that Islamophobes throw at us and so on and so forth, they kind of just melt away, right? As you learn how the deen works, as you learn the centrality of revelation and why, and why and, and why we take revelation so seriously, why revelation is the truth, why is it that we're why is it that our we our claim to truth? Is, is more superior to that of other religions? You know, that's a critical question. Any rational person would be like, well, Christians claim they're on the truth. It, the Jewish community, they, they believe they're on the truth. The atheists think they're onto the truth. What's so special about our claim to truth? Are we just one among many? Is there such a thing as the truth? People ask this all the time, but they just don't want to dive into it because they're worried. They don't want to lose their identity. They value who they are. Most people, they, we are believers because we value our identity. We're proud of our identity. I'm proud of being Muslim. I don't want anything to touch that. I don't want anything to compromise that. And the, 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 the ulama say that this is, this is valid iman if there is commitment. If there's commitment to it, this is valid iman. But it does not protect us from the doubts. And nor does it create a resilient culture. A, 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 a society of resilience where... Parents are feeling confident and resilient, so they can have these. They can comfortably have these conversations with their children. So yes, parents need it. In fact, the how to protect our iman in today's climate course is for adults, and we, we've had people taking their shahada again, unbeknown to us. We don't know that they had already left the deen. We find out later, having done the course, that they've taken. The, they've they've said jazakallah khairan. You know, I've I've repeated my shahada. You know. I, it's like it's a humble effort, but it, when when you hear things like that, to be honest, I'm I don't. It's not so much something to celebrate more than something to feel really pain about because the number of people that attend my course are a tiny fraction. I'm not particularly I'm not particularly popular or famous. A tiny number of people do my courses, so I wonder about how many people are out there, right, who are living with these issues and don't know how to deal with them. Every person that speaks to me about doubts and about how they left the deen, every single person, without exception, and the research also shows this, by the bits of research that have been done on this, shows this, they generally tend to end up down that route of losing faith because they don't get answers. And they don't get answers not online, because serious people don't look for answers online or the answers online are not satisfactory or they're too diverse. People approach these issues with their own ideas. I'll give you one example very briefly. I've had at least two people come up to me and say, I'm investigating Islam. I want to believe in Islam if it's the truth. However, I can't trust what the Muslims say about it. So I'm, so I'm only taking my information from non-Muslim sources. That is what you call an epistemology. You can have, we can have the best answers to these questions out there in the world, but this person's epistemology doesn't allow them to even ask you that question. You're not a valid source to him or her. How do you deal with that? The only way to deal with that is to be, is to allow these people to, to come and approach you. What happens when they approach? So they'll go, if they go to a local imam or they chance upon an imam and they have these conversations, in principle, they don't say, I'm having doubts. They say, what if somebody says this? What if somebody does, says that? What is the average response? The average response is, astaghfirullah, this is kufr. Right? Not realizing...
I don't know if you guys heard that or were you disconnected because I, I had a I had a moment of buffering there. And I can't hear you now. No, no, can you hear me yeah. now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, no, no. Can you hear all that? Uh, we we lost you at the, at the at the peak of what I you were saying. Yeah. What was the last thing I said? You were talking about um the epistemology that people have where they so they're coming at it with at it with their own epistemology which cancels yeah. out all of the muslim sources that we've put out there right and therefore the only way around that is to as is to as a society we have to be more open we have to be more welcoming of people who have their doubts and have these questions what i mean by that is not welcome the doubts but more welcoming of people to be able to discuss them to be able to come forward with them and ulama, every imam in every masjid, every alim, every scholar, every alima, whatever label, every shaykh, shaykha, right, has to be educated about these issues. Has to be educated about these I'm going to, inshallah, I've decided now, despite limited time, I've decided that I'm going to design an inset program, specifically for ulama and for people who teach, you know, children and, 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 and adults. Why? Because... What's the feedback? The feedback is I go from one imam to the next, to the next, to the next, and they refuse to answer the question. They don't yeah. say they don't want to answer the question. They say it's just kufr. They apply a judgment, right? That doesn't work for somebody who's having intellectual doubts or who has psychological issues. They have a deep grievance because they were beaten up as a child in the name of Islam, because they were brought up constantly on the message that you're going to go to Dozakh, you're going to go to Jahannam. Or as we say in Bengali, Allah marba, Allah's gonna hit you. We grow up and anything you do wrong, Allah marba. That's not a very positive kind of, you know, outlook towards Allah. Allah is just His punishing Lord. Sheikhan, could you say that as well? What what adds more stress upon this this issue um, is the fact that children grow up with an education, with a with a lifestyle, and with a perspective. That is not in is not symmetrical to their Islamic knowledge or their appreciation of Islamic knowledge, and the fact that you're you're sitting there and you're giving these people a, a course uh, and and a perspective that is kind of gives them all the answers that they wanted, that they could ever have with their faith in terms of doubts and stuff like that. That is very much needed in in the in the community beyond your local community, but in the in the global community as Muslims who are going through globalization, they're going through the issues that they find in their own communities and social media. You know, how do we as a global community find find the solutions for that? So I'm going to rephrase. I, I, I always I'm very I'm very careful about how I like to put this right. I say that iman needs to be people need to be re-educated in their about their iman in a manner that is responsive to doubt what what we don't what we don't necessarily have to give is a list of answers to difficult questions does that make sense i mean it's it's really important to make that distinction that means when i study my iman in a or my aqidah in a responsive way i'm still studying la ilaha illallah muhammad rasulullah i'm still studying the arkan of iman i'm still studying the attributes of allah but as i study them the the conversations about doubts naturally come up right and i i'm taught about these about basically the fundamentals of my deen in a in a manner that will naturally respond 
to those doubts rather than doing doing it the other way around what does islam say about slavery what does islam say about atheism about what's islam's response to atheism how do we respond to evolution etc etc for me it has to be the other way around right that's a very profound point chief could you elaborate on that so for example um if, if you teach people about iman rather than saying to them okay we believe in the six articles of faith and the first article is allah the first thing we have to do is we have to teach people have to understand how islam came to us what is the epistemological root of deen coming from the heavens to us where will that take you it, it might not occur to us initially but it obviously takes us down the route of discussing revelation why it takes us down the route of discussing prophethood it takes us down the route of again like pe people would not consider teaching this in aqida for example but it takes us down the route of of understanding isnad understanding transmission because there's a 1400 year gap between us and the prophet yes 1400 years ago there was a prophet named muhammad but how do i know what he said is true right how has that information been preserved Right? If they do a basic search with the wrong epistemology, with the with, you know, the I what 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 I mean by that, right? To to break down that fancy word is that they're deliberately looking at the wrong places. They want to see what non-Muslims have to say about how Muslims have have uh, preserved their faith. What they will find is more doubts. Right now, that whole phenomenon of transmission of information over time has to be broken down to them based on a different philosophy, philosophy, based on a set of principles that can be shown to be rational, more rational than what they found on a Google search from Islamophobes and Orientalists. I, I guarantee our methods are more rational, but we don't discuss them. But naturally, if you before you even talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the moment you start talking about things like revelation and so on, you will be forced to discuss well, how do we know that's true? Which will open up the conversation about Isnad, and then it will open up the conversation about why why is Isnad so authentic? Why is it so authentic, right? That's that, that opens up really interesting conversations that are that Wallahi they naturally appeal to people's common sense, right? We don't need complex philosophy. They naturally appeal to people's common sense, and that's just one example. The same goes if you talk about Iman in Prophet. There are some really, really important conversations to have before you say we believe in all the prophets or to justify to the modern or to the contemporary mind this idea that we believe in all of the prophets. There are there, there's lots to unpack there. Prophethood is at the center of religion before holy scriptures, before the Quran, before any scripture for that matter. Prophethood is, is at the center. Obviously, 1400 years down. The only thing surviving is the Quran. So we centralize, we, we make the Quran the center. But conceptually, it has to be prophethood. And the non-Muslims know that, which is why Orientalists, what do they attack? They attack revelation, they attack prophethood. Right? Attack the person of the Prophet. If you can dismantle the 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 the, the foundation of prophethood, if you can if 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 a non-Muslim can show, if the Islamophobes can show that the Prophet can't be trusted as, as a source, then you've dismantled the Quran by definition, by default. Right? But so, but we don't need to respond to that 
by framing it as a question and an answer, we just have to teach prophethood properly. That's it. I feel as though uh, we've gone over well over the limit in time limit, which uh, which is what I anticipated. But uh, I feel as though Subhanallah, it's been very beneficial. We've talked, we've talked, we've touched a range of topics. Um, alhamdulillah, in terms of what parenting is, how how just the general parenting struggles that we may have with our children, and then we moved on towards us um, RSE uh, and atheism and the community, especially with our young teenagers. And then we talked about just generally the way that we've been brought up in the West and our education and our pedagogy. Uh, in epistemology as you said um, and how all of these things can contribute to you know needing ulama like yourselves which you, I would I would argue you're at the forefront amongst uh, you know a few ulama that are doing this very niche thing yet it's so beneficial and we ask Allah to add it to accept it from you and to to go on ulama who are of high stature to appreciate what you're doing and do something similar within, within their communities if it is beneficial um, inshallah ta'ala but Sheikhuna, in terms of um, the final uh, few, few questions if we do have the time um, I have time it's up to you guys sorry I have you don't have to worry about me I have time now it's down to what the, the program uh, uh, yeah I, I would I would love to sit here for three three hours um, uh, I, we, I we're gonna get to we're gonna get to the questions as well inshallah we're gonna have about 15 15 minutes at the end inshallah, to address the oh, question oh, inshallah, ta'ala. Um, and may Allah reward everyone that's been attending and answering these questions and uh, you know, I really appreciate all of your patience, and if you're enjoying this, make dua for the Sheikh, inshallah. Uh, okay, so Sheikh, before we before we uh, go to the questions, um, do parents have? Actually, we kind of addressed one already. Um, so, in in a specific sense, right now, very specific. Okay, okay I'll be very specific. We talked about design pedagogy. We talked about children going through doubts and stuff. Now, in terms of young parents themselves young adults themselves adults themselves how do, how what do we do when it comes to islamic knowledge like where do we go for islamic knowledge uh given if we're working professionals or perhaps we've studied islam you know privately but we haven't formed a you know a structured learning is there a, is there should there be islamic knowledge available for adults in the same way that you've described uh and how how can it happen as a you know, community level um there's two parts to this. One is you as an individual, where do you go to study? Uh, and you know, there's, there's, there's good news in the sense that there's lots of provision online nowadays. Obviously COVID has pretty much pushed everything online. I used to be at Ibrahim College and we used to run, we used to have about five, 600 students doing part-time courses every term. But all of that is still there and all of that is online. And there's, there's many other providers, right? um and you know you can you can take a look the only thing i would say and i think asim and i have had this conversation is don't just make just beware of anonymity right and you should you should know um who the people are that have set up set up the service what their backgrounds are who is teaching and what the background of the teacher is and you know and yes there's different strands and groups and etc i don't discount any of that you have a group affiliation learn from the people who, who who you affiliate with not a problem but um make sure that you know that that you know these things and some of the things we've discussed basically you know these things um and you've learned these things so this is that then there's good news around provision when i first started doing this in 2003 when we first started running courses and so on you know there were hardly any providers and hardly anybody wanted to learn right so alhamdulillah there's a lot of zeal however 
Now, here's the other side, the flip side. The flip side is, the side is we're a big community, a big ummah. There's 3 million Muslims in the UK. The vast majority are not learning, which brings us to the macro solutions, right? What do we do as a community to solve this? And the biggest issue that we have to deal with is we have to change our attitude towards when it comes to our priorities. Our Islamic education and our children's, our, as in adults, our Islamic education and our children's Islamic education is the most important priority out there. It is the most important priority. However, it is the most neglected. And I've gone on about this for 15, 16 years, and I do hope in my lifetime I see change, right? It is more important than masjids. Only because of the way our masjid operate. Normally we would say it's one and the same. You have a masjid, you get your Islamic education. That's not happening. If that's not happening, right, then we have to prioritize the education. We have to prioritize the education because there will be no attendance in the masjids if there is no if there is no Islamic education. And when I say Islamic education, sufficient Islamic education. And I like to measure that, right? And I'll tell you what I mean by sufficient. Sufficiency is when there is critical mass in terms of improvement, right? I.e., we're able to say that the vast majority of people, there are ways in which you can use the Quran and Hadith to apply numbers, right? But I would say, okay, if we were to be a bit idealistic, then we can say that the vast majority of people are Islamically educated. Now, you might say that's impossible. Well, no, it's not. Because we live in countries where everybody gets educated about the dunya until after GCSE. Everyone, every single person, that was done. Right? That was achieved. Yeah, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, you might say it's impossible. You can't. We can't say it's impossible today. This can be done. And let me give you another statistic, right? 70%, according to some you know, sources, 70% of the Muslim community's children already receives an Islamic education from the age of 5 until the age of 13, 14, 15. It varies, right? Some, in some places, girls stop early and so on. So, so then what's the problem? Well, the problem is that while they are getting an Islamic education, it's not adequate. It's not fit for purpose. And we have to, as a community, and you ask any provider what's their biggest problem, they will say there isn't enough support. Right? They're struggling when it comes to resources. Right? They're being pressured into thing into doing things that aren't their priority. Like parents pressurizing them, why hasn't my child completed a khatam of the Quran yet? When that is far down there in terms of priorities, right? The people the teachers have to be allowed to dictate the priorities in the edu in education. And the teachers themselves have to engage in proper conversations about what the priorities are in the education that they are providing. One of the biggest problems is that we're just, you know, we, we, what we're doing, we're just inheriting what happened yesterday, which is give the children a bit of Quran, teach them how to read the Quran, teach them their basics of Salah, etc., etc., which, by the way, they will forget, right? Because that's what my children, they, 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 they forget. They've forgotten what they learned about Salah when they went to Madrasa, right? They have to be re-educated again and again and again. That means provision has to exist for all age groups, and it has to continue. I mean, it's unacceptable to, to, to stop girls' education at the age of nine. I mean, how is that? How, how is that justified? So these are all some of the things that we have to deal with, which means that our attention and our focus and our priority has to be the provision of education. That's where we have to put our money. That's where we have to pressurize our leaders. Right? Look, we have 
we 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 know we can do this when it comes to charities and etc etc we're providing a degree of sufficiency we in fact we're overperforming we're giving more in charity than uh than 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 the average brit so we know we can do it we just have to realign our priorities all right and dare i say it dare i say it, and i hope i don't get bombarded because of this it's more important for you to spend your money towards your children's education and your education in this country where that provision is insufficient than for you to deal with some crisis abroad, right? Because of the fact that nobody is dealing with this problem. You're not going to get money from the Muslim world for your children's iman here in this country. It's just not going to happen, right? However, all of those countries and all of those rulers have an obligation and a duty to help relieve some of the crisis around the world. And some of the poverty around the world and they are doing it right they are doing it if you look at any crisis around the world the, the amount of money that we contribute towards those crises is a fraction of the overall amount that comes in from it from international sources and from states we're not making a massive difference over there shift some of the emphasis over here and very very quickly we can have all of the resources we need to provide outstanding islamic education to every child and every adult just a little bit of adjustment that was uh, that was truly sublime. I think that you know, Subhanallah, may Allah reward you and and uh, put success in all of your initiatives that you're doing. I'm I'm very impressed by you know uh, these kinds of answers. It just shows to me, Subhanallah, that we need to think more forward thinking in terms of our communities. Shaykhana, if you kindly let me allow me to, I'm going to now pose some questions from the chat facility that we've been giving, uh, we've been getting throughout. Uh, I just like to thank all of our viewers. May Allah reward all of you for you know enjoying enjoying and being in the company of of, of Sheikh Shams and, and enjoying the, the discussions we've had regarding uh, Islamic education and uh, dealing with um, children and happy and parents as well. Inshallah. I'm going to start inshallah with the first question from the chat. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, show. Here we go. Um, so this is Thaqib, uh, mashallah. Um, he says, if a child was brought up in a broken family and he sinned, uh, is this because of his family upbringings or is it uh, because he has uh, nafs al-awwama? Uh, Shaykh before you answer that question, I just want to elaborate because you've got quite a few. Um, this reminds me of uh, you know the, the format that I'm used to with you. <laughs> but inshallah, you know, just try, if you can keep it uh, 16 as possible, may Allah reward you and Zahra uh, khair. Well, the short answer is that you have to assume it's both. You have to assume it's both. I mean, there's nothing to gain in trying to choose one or the other, right? We have to assume both. We don't have to blame anyone. We don't have to blame the parents and the broken family. Of course, there is blame, right? But there may be circumstances, etc. That's not the point. But the point is, when it comes to dealing with the child, we have to assume it's a bit of both. And therefore, the solutions have to reflect that. That's the short answer. Often, often we polarize these questions and... We, we we feel that it has to, we have to we have to clearly know which one it is which one of the two it is no we don't right we have to assume it's both yeah and these generally tend to be matters in which solutions have to be holistic so we have to come up with with ways to solve the problem that are holistic and that will by by their very nature by the nature of the solution will will address both of these issues okay inshallah yeah. I, I appreciate that it was very uh, um expansive um another question here we have um is 
they are some of them are very open-ended so i really commend you if you're able to be succinct with these ones i i, I can imagine you could take a whole lesson with this um, but how do we as parents make our children not use smartphones or make them make make them use less often okay so making them is hard making them because eventually you'll lose that battle meaning eventually you'll give them that smartphone and then they'll do whatever they want okay so it's a, it's it's a losing battle if we frame this in terms of making them do it what you have to do is you have to you have to get their buy-in that and we're going to go back to conversations we have to have conversations about values about morality about moral compass about right and wrong right from the outset right the most important thing that you can give your child the biggest gift right is an islamic moral compass that's the most important thing that you can do and that requires constant conversations right not necessarily formal teaching formal readings but conversations discussions um you know questions inquiry interest taking an interest just you taking an interest in your child's development and in, in their education and how they think etc has a profound impact upon them because that's what they remember right and that's what they'd appreciate about you parents who neglect these things will ultimately be blamed by their own children it's almost guaranteed and if they don't do it to your face it's because they still have some semblance of respect right which they probably got because of their islamic education or because of their cultural upbringing but ultimately there is blame and i hear it all the time don't people will never say it to their parents but they will always say you know what when i was growing up my parents just planted me in front of that tv man what can i do allah forgive them they're very generous or magnanimous about it right but they are still blaming they are still pointing that finger at their parents so we can't make them that doesn't work um, sometimes it does all right making them do something should be the exception right having conversations and imparting values and the moral compass upon them should be the norm and sometimes what you do is you justify your actions you then put rules on top of that and then you enforce that those rules if they are broken right so that comes right at the end before that is you know is all of those conversations upon which you so essentially what you want is you want their buy-in when 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 you make a decision about phones and social media etc you want to have engage in a conversation that will get your children usually these are children who are 11 and above 12 13 14 and so on but you want them to agree with you the ones younger than that generally tend to agree but you want them to agree what do you think should happen what would you do if you were a parent i often say that to my children i say if you were in my position and and you were a father right what would you do what would you say i should do and usually if it's a serious conversation nine out of ten you get the right answer you'll get the right answer and that's buy-in and and if they break the rule and you have to fought then if you have to enforce you can remind them of that conversation you have a nice reference point so it's just <laughs> yeah. one method. it's just one method but it's definitely better than just saying okay strict rule and then enforce it it might work, but how it works or what what it does to the child inside has a lot to do with that child's characteristic. Some children are naturally rebellious, which isn't necessarily a bad attribute. There's actually something immensely positive about that rebellious streak. It may be a sign of a strong character. It may be a sign of strong intelligence and so on. And you can't suppress that. You have to keep educating them and channeling that quality, but they will rebel if you make the wrong move. 
right? Yeah. It's important to consider that. Not everything that we think is bad in our children is necessarily bad, right? It's, a, it's the symptom of something deeply good. And we've got to sometimes recognize that. That's, that's very powerful. I mean, it's, that's, that brings them on the concept of nurturing, isn't it? Because they may have good qualities that you can t you can get, gear them towards that, leadership qualities in some things. Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. Sheikh Hana, I really appreciate that question. I, I'm sort of regretting not starting the Q&A session a bit earlier because I feel like there's so much depth here that you've unraveled uh, from these questions. And we've got quite a few of them to do that. So I'd like to thank our viewers for, for, for getting, for, for tuning in. Uh, next question is, how can parents nurture a real love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the sunnah rather than hedonistic lifestyle that may become exposed through in school and general media? We touched upon this topic, you touched this upon this topic earlier, but it'd be good to, to, to really talk about that more specifically, inshallah. Yeah. Why, do, why do children love football stars? Why do they love movie stars? Why do they love those people? Why do they love pop stars? Because they love what they do. They value what they do. Children love football, they value the football. They love whatever sport it is. They love the sport, they value the sport, then they value the people who do that best. All right? Uh, pop stars. The first the child loves the music, right? Then they love the people who do that best, right? They have they have a positive attitude towards what's being produced. They feel the music is impacting them positively in their lives. It affects them. They engage with it for a long time, and therefore they value the people that do it. Right, and effect, and then, and then their their love for that person and their admiration for that person grows the more they know about them. Right, it's what's really interesting is that ulama have discussed these principles right in hadith commentaries when they discuss hadiths about love of the Prophet that people are loved either because you owe them something, they've done you a service, they've done you a favor, because you recognize their favor upon you. Or you recognize their qualities, either physical or moral, right? You recognize their characteristics, you connect with their characteristics, you connect with their actions and their legacy and what they have done. It's there, these are the reasons for love. Sometimes, yes, sometimes it's also physical attraction and so on, but that one comes right down the pecking order. Jamal, physical Jamal, physical beauty. Now, they love all of these other things because they connect with all of the things that inspire love. And I think now, the next bit about, well, how can we do that with the Prophet Sallallahu now is obvious, right? We have, to, we, have to we have to show that we value what the Prophet did, what he does, what he gave us, his legacy, right? And then around that, we have to build up our children's knowledge of the Prophet without being preachy right it has to be done again it has to be done conversationally kind of naturally organically right intuitively every now and then we can do something formal but be mindful of 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 uh you know overdoing the kind of formal halaqa format right once a week or maybe maximum twice a week is all you need in terms of a formal sit down right it has to be just the you know like a like a 30 second little a little hint here a little pointer there or you do you think that's really really nice do you know what the prophet used to do that right or did you know that the prophet was about was about yay height you know he was he was he was like this uh, you know he had are you think that you know, what there's so many things to point out but but you can't do that if you don't know yourself as a parent so educate yourselves and then read I recommend, and I, I'm trying to do this myself, but I recommend 
that you read a Sira book or the same Sira book once a year, right? And then you read the, the Shama'il of the Prophet ﷺ, you know, the Prophet's physical characteristics and the, and the Khasa'is once every year. Once, like as a form of revision. Not once in your lifetime, but once every year. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and the lives of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu as a bare minimum there are other heroes right uh, people have their ideological heroes somebody who's really really central to the group that they follow and so on and so forth but the source is the prophet and the sahaba and you know the early generations know about them particularly the prophet and the sahaba the sahabiyat and so on and your knowledge will then inspire your children because then you'll be able to kind of intuitively do it you understand because They'll ask you a question, you'll be able to engage a conversation. They're doing something, you'll be able to point that out and say, you know, that's really good. The Prophet should do that. That's the better way to do it rather than just having formal sit-downs, which is also good if you can break it up and keep it manageable and not overdo it and not bore them. The Prophet according to Abdullah Masud used to do that with the Sahaba. Why? Because he didn't want them to get fed up. The Sahaba with the Prophet. He explained this when somebody said to him, why don't you do more halakas? I said, why don't you teach us more? And he said, no, I break it up because this is what the Prophet used to do with us. Fearing that, you know, like you'd get bored or you'd be too much. You'd get fed up of it. Jazakallah khair, Shaykhana. This is, uh, this is really good uh, advice. I'm really, I'm so grateful that we, we, we're doing this, this, this Q&A. SubhanAllah, it's amazing advice. We have a few more questions. Um, it would be we have to wrap up in the next five or six minutes, inshallah. This is really sad, and I do apologize for that simply because the, the limit of the podcast uh, session is, is too long. And I was already told maximum one hour, so I'm sorry about that. Um, okay, so next question is um, this is a very uh, this is a really um, uh, big question. So, Sheikhana, perhaps I don't know how we're going to answer this one, but. Uh, Mel or this person for being honest and, and, and telling us that. Yeah, do the course. It's mawaridlifestyle.com, how to protect our iman in today's climate. The parent do it first. The, look, the most important thing is we will have extensive conversations. I'm very open about these things. I don't encourage anybody to shy away from discussing their doubts and so on. And I will, I, I will never judge you, right? We all have our issues. So uh, do the course, all right? It's, I'm actually going to be, it, it's, it's available on demand and live, and I'm starting a new live iteration on the 2nd of March, inshallah. So moradlifestyle.com and the go to the courses page and you'll see how to protect our mind in today's climate. I'm so glad you, you could answer that very quickly. Um, okay. Uh, Um, you kind of actually answered this question already, but one of the brothers mentioned, what do you think about beginning with stories of the Prophet and Sirah as a starting point to begin discussions between you know, the child and the parent? Um, you mentioned obviously reading a Sirah book once a year. I can imagine that would overlap with your life. Look, the more you as a parent internalize those stories and know them well, the more you will be able to use different ways to impart the stories, right? The method that works the least, in my opinion, is saying to the child, I want you to read five pages of the seerah every day, and I'm going to then ask you questions about it, right? 
And probably the next least effective is to sit with that child, your children, and then read a part of the a bit of the seerah for 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 half an hour. It, these things are effective, but you can't you can you can overdo these things and bore them because they're they're boring methods of pedagogy. Pedagogically speaking, these methods are boring, right? So you know, and I have no problem saying you know watch watch a cartoon with them, right? On the seerah, right? Um, me and my children watched the Umar series, and people can judge me if they want, if you think it's impermissible to do that, but we watched the Umar series, right? My children were inspired. I could never have inspired them the way that inspired them, right? And, but I'd read the Siras, so I could, I could point out those little nuances, you know, those the, the, the bits where they might take away an inaccurate portrayal because of the fact that you know, they're not showing the Prophet Ali's we have to be innovative. We are facing challenging times, and we have to. I was going to say at the end of the last question, go easy, man. They're children. Go easy on them, right? Go easy on them, but don't compromise. We've got to give them the the, the parenting and the nurturing, but we've got to go easy on them. This hard parenting, it works, but it leaves scars. Sometimes, many a time, it works because essentially what you're doing is you're indoctrinating, and indoctrination works. But it leaves scars, deep scars. All right. So go easy, make it fun, make it enjoyable, relax, let your hair down a little, little uh, a bit yourself, right? But lead by example, lead by example. So have those conversations about the seerah, but make it just story time, make it a bedtime story, make it something that your children will look forward to. All right. Prepare your stories in advance. Okay, inshallah. Um, we've reached the time limit and I'm really sorry, we've actually got a few more questions. Um, uh, I'll try to see if one of them has not been addressed yet at all. Um, okay, so one question very quickly, inshallah, from Zishan. Uh, I'll try to keep this really uh, succinct, inshallah. Uh, we mentioned about young parents learning about parenthood earlier. Would a similar approach be ideal for someone not married, i.e. looking to be a parent soon, inshallah? Yeah, so the same principle, objectives, values, moral compass, these are some of the things you have to look for in a, in a, in a prospective spouse. Before you talk about compatibility in terms of attraction, etc., those things are important. I'm not saying that they're not important, but what I'm saying is in terms of prioritizing, the thing that comes, that that you have to value the most is, mm. is Dean. But by Dean, I'm not just talking about do they pray, I'm talking about do they think the same way as you about them. Yeah. Hopefully, I'm saying that to people who are thinking the right way themselves, because that's also people can be very presumptuous about themselves, right? So, so first, when you when you invest in all of that effort to get married and so on and so forth, perhaps start by investing in yourself, and investing in a kind of personal evaluation of where I am, right, uh, myself, and mm -hmm. then and then once you've done that, then look for somebody who is similar minded in terms of dean, in terms mm -hmm. of values in terms of priorities and so on. And then obviously there are the other physical stuff, you know, physical attraction and so on and so forth. Those things are there, but wallahi, uh, if you if you get the right person in terms of those other things and you did make compromises when it comes to the physical stuff, you won't regret it. Subhanallah. Well, partly you won't regret it because your values are strong. If your mm. values are weak, then you won't be able to see past the pretty face. Mm. Which is evaluation in the first place. I'm going to remind our viewers, inshallah, this this topic by nature is is very de is very deep, and 
and that, that's why I'm trying to justify the one hour, 45 minutes that, you know, this could go on for hours because parenting is not as specific as perhaps, perhaps social media, the damage of social media, but parenting as a whole is so expansive. So I just like to, you know, let brothers know and sisters know that this is the reason why it's a, it's a very in-depth topic. And I believe by, you know, by that, on, on that uh, note, inshallah ta'ala, um, I will have to, will have to end inshallah ta'ala. Uh, and I do apologize for every, all the brothers and sisters who have their questions who could not have them answered. Um, you know, may Allah reward you all. Um, Shaykhuna, any closing statements, inshallah, before we end, like in a minute, inshallah? Any thoughts? Uh, well, I'll say I'll say this as a kind of you know, I, I don't I, I don't believe I'm an absolutist person. I don't really like absolutism except in the fundamentals of Deen. So therefore, I will say that. When it comes to things like parenting and so on and so forth there isn't there are lots and lots of wrong answers there are lots of wrong ways to do it but there are lots of right ways to do things right you know like i was thinking about running a parenting course and then i started to worry about about my own children and i thought you know what i need to get to a point where i feel okay i'm i'm comfortable with where i where i'm at <laughs> with, with my own children you know, i feel I feel insecure about my own parenting and that's the nature of, of parenting which which means that you need lots and lots of dua as well you know you need to with all of those actions and those strategies you also need lots of dua uh you know uh, I, I remember my father kind of my mom telling me that my father used to regularly get up at night just to pray for us for his children so about his children you know, and that's powerful. You know, I can see the effects of that in myself and in all of my siblings, right? Not, no credit to us, but there was something there at that level before we were born and while we were growing up. And every parent needs to needs to engage in that kind of practice as well, because the variables are so complex. Yes, some of the answers are simple, and hopefully people can take those simple uh, highlights out of this session. Um, uh, you know, but 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 also trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and rely on him and make da'a to him as well. Just like to remind our viewers, Jazakum uh, khair for viewing this uh, podcast and this session. We ask Allah to make us from those who can enact everything.